asking me along this evening, thanks to Ivor and uh, the churches who have came together. It's a great privilege to be here. I was at a Church of England service this morning, so when everyone just sat down there, I was thinking, what are you doing? You're supposed to wait on me, because that's the way it goes down there. It's, you've got to wait on what the vicar does, so it's very, very different up here, but I think we do it the right way, if you ask me. So, But it's great to be amongst you, and this evening, as Ivor mentioned, we're going to look at One of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible, it's the well-known and well-loved Psalm 23. And if we were to sum up the words of this particular psalm, I guess we could say this is about a sheep boasting about his shepherd and what his shepherd has done for him. Now coming from a non-rural background like the west end of Glasgow, where I come from, some people would say I'm totally unqualified to comment on sheep. Or shepherds. The last time I was in Yoker, there weren't many shepherds or sheep walking up the street. So people say I'm unqualified. However, they would be wrong. In fact, the Bible says that every single one of us here are qualified to speak about sheep and shepherds. Doesn't Isaiah 53 say that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray? And we know that, don't we? Even as Christians, we still do it. And all of us here were part of that troubled and helpless crowd that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 9. He looks on them as sheep without a shepherd. That's us, isn't it? So then, friends, being like sheep, all of us here, and I don't know anybody's background, but all of us here, no matter who we are, where we're from, what our background is, all of us here need a shepherd. Or we don't stand a chance in this world. You need a shepherd And it's not just any old shepherd we need, it's a good shepherd, one who has our best interests at heart. And it's this shepherd we meet in Psalm 23. Before we dive into what the psalm's saying, let me just take a moment to pray to this good shepherd, to ask that he would bless us and and that nothing would distract us. I just heard that motorbike zooming along that road. It's amazing how we things can distract us, but let me just pray that God would keep us focused on his word and on the Lord Jesus. So let's take a moment to pray. Father God, we acknowledge before you that we are indeed helpless sheep, just like sheep that don't know where they're going and what they're doing. And Lord, with this we acknowledge before you that we need a shepherd. Lord Jesus, would you shepherd us tonight? Would you send your Holy Spirit to to meet you afresh in the scriptures, to encourage us, to challenge us. And Lord, if there is any here who are not in your fold at this time, Lord, I pray that this would be the evening where they come in. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Somebody said that just as lighthouses bring hope and direction to ships that are lost or caught in storms, So Psalm 23 brings hope and direction to weary and distressed souls. And we see this at funerals, don't we? I've lost count of the amount of funerals that I've had to take 
down in West Cumbria where a family, even a non-Christian family, have requested that Psalm 23 either be read or sung. There's something about this psalm. There's something about this psalm that grips people. I was with an old lady yesterday and I buried her 39-year-old son two months ago. And they picked Psalm 23. They're not churchgoers, but there's something about this psalm. Charles Spurgeon, he says about this psalm, that as the nightingale is among the birds, so Psalm 23 is among the psalms. He went on to say, it sings sweetly in the ear of broken souls during nights of weeping. And it brings great hope of joy for what the next morning might bring. And I'm sure all of us have experienced that with Psalm 23. And the first thing I want us to know about Psalm 23, and I hope you've got your Bibles opened, just so you can check that I'm actually telling the truth and not making this up as I go along. But the first thing I want us to look at from the psalm is this, how it's positioned. This psalm follows what's commonly known as the psalm of the cross. It follows Psalm 22, where we read about no green pastures and no still waters. Rather, if you look at verse 1 of Psalm 22... Here, this psalm begins with the words that Jesus would take up on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the rest of that psalm, it goes on to speak about the shame and torment Jesus endured as he hung as a sacrifice for sin. My friends, the positioning of both these psalms is deliberate. It is very deliberate. It seems that God himself has put these two psalms side by side because he wants us to see this, that unless we know Christ as a crucified saviour we cannot know him as a caring shepherd one must be known before the other the two go hand in hand and Jesus himself takes up this connection in John chapter 10 he says this I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep Jesus here connects his role as shepherd to his role as substitute the two cannot be broken So I guess the challenge for us here this evening is this. If we don't see Jesus Christ as our substitute, that is if we don't see him when he's hanging upon the cross doing that for our sin and our place, taking our punishment, we cannot know him as shepherd. Why? As Jesus says, he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The two go hand in hand. Another thing to note about the positioning of Psalm 22 and 23 is the contrast between the sheep's blessing and security in Psalm 23 with the Son of God's brokenness and suffering in Psalm 22. Such a great contrast here between what the sheep experienced in blessing and what the shepherd experienced in suffering. And I think we learn from this something of the great price that Jesus paid so that we can come to God We take this for granted in church, don't we? I do. It's what Jesus did. I'm a Christian. Let's move on to churchy things now. But see, if we miss what Jesus has done for us, the price that he has paid, we miss the whole gospel. On the cross, there are no green pastures for Jesus to feed on. No still waters to drink from, as we read about in Psalm 23. Rather, Jesus, and think about this afresh. I need to think about this. He starved terribly. And the only drink that he had, we're going to have tea and coffee later on. What did Jesus drink? 
The only drink he had was from the cup of God's wrath. He, the Son, was broken and suffered so that we, the sheep, could be blessed and be secure. A couple of years ago, the BBC reported that the world's most expensive sheep was a sheep called Deverinvale Perfection. Wait till you hear this. This lets us see how daft we are. Sheep would never do this. It was sold at auction for £231,000. A sheep? Can you believe that? The BBC says this is the most expensive sheep. Well, they were wrong. See, when we put Psalm 22 and 23 together, brothers and sisters, do you know what we learn from that? That we are the most expensive sheep the world has ever known. Because we have not been bought by £231,000. We have been brought, bought with the precious blood of Christ. wonder when the last time that struck you as a Christian. Isn't it amazing how easy it is to kind of moan about things that go on in church? And we never take a wee moment to rejoice that Jesus has saw us as having such a great value and worth that he says, Father, I'll pay for them with my own blood. We are a valuable, valuable flock of people. And if that doesn't make our hearts rejoice, nothing will. Nothing. Just one more thing to note about Psalm 23 before we get into the detail of the psalm. If you look at the title, it says it's a psalm of David. Now that's part of the original Hebrew text. It's not an add-on some years later. Israel's great king David penned this psalm. And David was a man who knew all there was to know about sheep and shepherding. When he appears on the biblical scene in 1 Samuel 16, what do we find him doing? He's keeping his father Jesse's flock. And then in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, we hear him telling King Saul about his care for his sheep. He says, when a lion or a bear takes one of his lambs, he goes after it, he strikes it, and he delivers the lamb from its mouth. And it's perhaps as David looked back in all of this, Perhaps as he did that, he saw that God had protected and delivered him from battle and enemy in such a similar way. And that was the inspiration, perhaps, to write the opening words of the psalm, where he says, The Lord is my shepherd. And that brings us to the first thing I want to look at this evening. Namely, that the God of Psalm 23 is a God who is a personal shepherd. And we see this in the title that David uses for God in verse 1. At the very start, and also at verse 6 at the end. Have a look at that. He calls him the Lord, each letter being with a capital letter. Now, being good free church folk, you'll know what this means. He's speaking about Yahweh, the covenant God. David is speaking about a God who knew him intimately and who he knew intimately, relationally. And that's the reason why David can go on to say in verse 1, My shepherd... And this personal touch is something you'll see continues throughout the whole psalm. This is a psalm with no we, us, or they in it. You don't find that in Psalm 23. Rather, we read of my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and so on. Now friends, it's vital that we alongside David can say this of the Lord. That he is mine. We need to know him personally individually we need to experience him for ourselves no decision by a parent or a minister or anybody else will do us any good 
if we stand before God in the last day and it's revealed that we haven't known Jesus personally, by ourselves, for ourselves. And that challenges us, doesn't it? It asks the question, is this something we have done? Sometimes in a crowd this size, people get lost in the crowd and they can hide by slumping down in their chair. But is this something we have done? Can we say with David, my shepherd? You would have heard this psalm a million times to the point that you miss this most important detail. My shepherd, do we know the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, for those who do know him as a personal shepherd, they will also know God as David did as the providing shepherd, which is the second thing we learn from Psalm 23. Those who can say the first half of verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, they can say with David the second half of verse 1, I shall not be in want. Now some people, especially those in the name it and claim it brigade, you know, they, they, they tell us that God gives us everything now. They abuse these words. I've heard this being terribly abused. I heard somebody saying their translation of this was, the Lord is my bank manager. I have everything I want. I mean, what a corruption of scripture. You would be embarrassed to say that. But this is not what David's getting at here. David is telling us that he would lack nothing. He would be content because he knew that the God who loved him and was watching over him was the God who possessed all things and lacked nothing. Friends, what David is teaching us here is this. See, when we have God, and again, maybe you take this for granted what I do at times. When we have God, we have everything we need. Can I say that again? Because church folk kind of nod their head out of politeness to make the, the, the preacher feel welcome. Brothers and sisters, see when we have the Lord, we have the whole thing. We have everything. David is telling us here that God in himself is enough. Now you can go home tonight to a mansion in a Bentley or you can go home walking it back to a dump. See, if you know Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter what you're driving home in or where you live. If you've got God, as they say in some parts of Glasgow, you've got the full shaban. Now, I don't know if that's correct in the Hebrew. That's, that's what David's telling us here. You've got the whole thing. We are a blessed, blessed people. And in the verses that follow, we get this brilliant picture of God providing for his sheep with everything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And friends, this is the place where all of us here want to be, isn't it? We all want to be at this place. But do you know one of the tragedies in Scotland tonight? Millions of people out there trying to find green pastures, still waters, satisfaction for their soul, not in God, but in things like money, sex and power, through substances like drink and drugs, when all the while their true and only contentment is in Christ, the Good Shepherd. I stayed in Airdrie about three years ago, and I would be out speaking at various church meetings on a Saturday night, evangelistic meetings, and the amount of times I've drove past this area, and there's a nightclub somewhere over there, and I used to think, Lord, they don't know you. 
They're not content. Young people wasting their lives. I can say that because I've done it. And I still meet one person that's satisfied in that lifestyle. I've never met one. The church father, Augustine, he catches all of this in his prayer which says this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Is that not the truth? There's no rest outside of Jesus. There's nothing outside of him. Now I don't know everybody here's situation, their circumstance, or life story, but what I do know is this, if your satisfaction isn't in God, and you know some, pe- some people in churches are at that place, they've came to church all their life, they can sing all these hymns without looking at the screen, they know the tunes, they'll tell you everything that goes on in the church, they'll tell you the minister's details and his phone number off by heart, but if we've never came to really know Jesus, if our satisfaction isn't in God, then we will be looking in all the wrong places. And I guess in a sense we can join that band, the Rolling Stones, who sing, I can't get no satisfaction. But I try and I try and I try. Do you know, I'm actually going to get a petition and suggest that that should be Britain's national anthem instead of God Save the Queen. Because more people can relate to that than what they can, God save the Queen. I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, and I try, and I try. So I know what people out there are crying out every day. Perhaps you're crying that out. The Bible tells us money lets us down, people lets us down, power lets us down, and we let ourselves down. God alone makes us lie down in green pastures, leads beside still waters, restores our soul. He has indeed made us for himself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in him. It's good to be a Christian. It's good to be a Christian. We take it for granted. I take it for granted. But it's good. Well, so far we've saw that God is the personal and the providing shepherd. And as we go on to verse 3, we are introduced to God as the purifying shepherd. And I think this is what David's getting at when he says, He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I mentioned a moment ago how many think they can be satisfied apart from God. Well, along with this, there are many people who think they can be righteous and pure apart from God. And they do this by trying to be religious or doing enough good deeds, all of which they think makes them right with God. When the Bible says the exact opposite, it wants us to see that the only righteousness acceptable to God is God's righteousness. We miss that in church a lot as well, don't we? We judge people by how many meetings they've come to. It's God's righteousness that makes us righteous. And here's the good news of the gospel. When we receive God's Son, we get God's righteousness. If you don't believe me, well, listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think this is my favourite verse in the Bible. I'll probably say in five minutes I've got another favourite verse, but I like this one. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, what happens? We become good church folk. No. So that in him we become the righteousness of God. Paul's telling us about that great exchange that took place at Calvary. Namely that for 
all whose sin was placed upon Jesus, God's righteousness was placed upon them. I had the privilege of sharing this with somebody in a bank in Argyle Street on Monday. The woman that works in the bank. I don't even know how we got into the conversation, but I think she started it. And we got into talking about substitution. And I'm saying to her, here's what happened on the cross. She's not a Christian. Her name's Carol. Pray for Carol. I says to her, Carol, forget all the religion, but here's what happened on the cross. Here we are, and here Jesus is. All of our sin placed upon him. But some people think that's it. The next bit is all of his righteousness placed upon us. The two go hand in hand. And do you know what that means tonight for us as Christians? And I think this is brilliant. In a sense, we cannot become any more righteous than we are right now. Even when we stand before God's throne. Now, I see a few raised eyebrows thinking, is that correct? Well, God doesn't become any less righteous. And it's only his righteousness that we've got. Because there's nothing of us to offer. The only thing we bring to the plate is the sin that we bring. Isn't that brilliant? That God looks on us tonight in Coat Bridge of all places. And he sees his son's righteousness. He sees us in his son. Now if you're a Christian and you struggle with sin and you let God down and you think, oh, what does God think? I get through this every day as a Christian. Well, do you know what God thinks? God thinks you're righteous, not because of you, but because of Jesus. I don't think we hear this enough in church. It's always about how good are you doing, you know, your spiritual performance. That's why most Christians end up crushed. And it's usually some other well-meaning Christian that crushes them with this stuff. It's works righteousness that. Well, we don't read that in scripture. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, union with Christ, we become the righteousness of God. He guides us in paths of righteousness, Psalm 23. Why does it say he guides us in paths of righteousness? Do you know why? Because we would never go there ourselves. It's not in us. We can't do it. He guides us. And note also in verse 3 that God does this not for our boasting, not to say, look how righteous we are. We're much better than they people in the nightclub. No, God does this for his glory. He guides me in paths of righteousness. So the church gets a good name. So that we can say, well, look how holy we are. No, for his name's sake. Isn't that interesting, that wee comment that David fires in? For his name's sake. David is telling us salvation is more for the glory of his name than it is for the salvation of our souls. On the last day when Jesus returns, it will be all glory to him. All glory. And the amazing thing is, we're told by Paul, we share in that glory when he returns. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, look around at each other. Look at this guy. I mean, we're not much, are we, at times to look at? <laughs> Although you are, you're much better than the English. <laughs> but, but it's amazing that we will share in his glory because we share in his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, be excited about this. You've heard this psalm preached a million times, so have I. I need to keep coming back to the simple things. 
and not wondering about some intricate detail in Leviticus so that I can share it with everybody else about how much I know. It's the simple things that keep encouraging me. Well, so far all we've looked at in the psalm has been positive stuff, hasn't it? We've looked at God being personal, providing and purifying. However, when we come to verse 4, things change. Here we're told about a place that we perhaps wish wasn't in the psalm. It's a place of great want, a place where the pastures aren't green, a place where the waters aren't so still, and a place where the soul, rather than feel restored, that feels in turmoil. Verse 4 introduces us to the valley of the shadow of death. And this is where we meet God as the pruning shepherd. There are places God allows his sheep to visit which are deeply, deeply uncomfortable. But you know, while there, he prunes his sheep to make them more like himself. Throughout the Bible and throughout church history, what we read is this, those who are most effective for God, those who were greatest used, they first visited the valley to be broken. It's a hard lesson, isn't it? Somebody says, just as oysters produce pearls only after they're beaten and smashed against the rocks, so it is with the people of God. Friends, if we want our lives to produce pearls, I think what we learn from this is this, it's going to cost us. And it's a law of God's kingdom, isn't it? Never a crown without a cross, never glory without grief, never power without pain. As hard as it is to accept, the good shepherd allows his sheep to visit this valley. Why? For he knows that beyond the valley lies the greenest pastures and the stillest and most fresh waters. And beyond the valley our soul gets restored most and God's righteousness is seen in us most. So can I encourage you if you're in the valley, there's a good chance somebody is in the valley. Sometimes we're brilliant at hiding this from each other. If you're in the valley, can I encourage you, don't despair. So many Christians think, God's abandoned me. Why is he allowing this? Friends, rather than having abandoned you, which the valley can often feel like, can I encourage you by saying that this means that God is leading you and pruning you, allowing you to be tested for a time which at the end of it you're going to be fruitful and you'll be used by him in a way that you never imagined. It's hard. And we feel, God, where are you? Jesus picks up this theme in John chapter 12. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. Dies. It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So if in the valley and if being pruned. Brothers and sisters, you take heart. Because you're in good company. This is the place that God took some of the greatest saints of old. I don't know if you've read John Piper's book, Tested by Fire. It tells the life story of three men of God who were in the valley every day of their life. John Bunyan, David Brainard and William Cooper, the hymn writer. You ever read these guys' life stories? William Cooper tried to commit suicide three times. Born again believer. John Bunyan, I think it was 11 or 12 years in the jail for preaching the gospel. And he had a daughter who was blind. And he says every time she came up to visit and she left, it was like flesh being torn. And they kept saying to him, just stop preaching and we'll let you out. 
Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Each of these men had nothing left of themselves. They were crushed. But God used their brokenness to touch the lives of millions. And their writings in their hands still touch the lives of many people today. Read that book, Tested by Fire, John Piper. You'll get it on Amazon for about £2. Tested by Fire. King David himself, he also knew what it was to visit the valley. Read David's life story. Betrayal, danger, the loss of loved ones. Yet in Psalm 23, he seems to reflect on all of this. And he can look back and see that God had kept him and sustained him through everything. And you know, that's what God will do for us, even if we're in the valley. And in verse 4, although God is the pruning shepherd that allows us to go through valleys, David tells us in verse 4, that God is the ever-present protecting shepherd and he will not allow us to endure more than we can bear. In verse 4, David gives two reasons here why he didn't fear any evil that the valley produces. Number one, and most importantly, for you are with me. Familiar with that as well, aren't we? God is with us. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. We might be in the most broken of places, Guess who's there with us? Jesus. Jesus is there. Brother and sister, if you're struggling tonight, Jesus is with you. For you are with me. The second reason David didn't fear the valley is God's rod and staff comforted him while he was there. Now I'm told that shepherds used their rod and staff for two things. Number one, to lead. And number two, to protect their sheep. So I guess we could say the rod and staff that leads to pruning is the rod and staff that leads the sheep out the other side of the pruning process. And verse 5 of Psalm 23 indicates at the end of every valley and every pruning process, God has great blessing in store for his people. Look what David says in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, overflows I need to confess I didn't fully understand what these words meant and then I read the following and it helped me perhaps it will help you as well I read this in the east a host would frequently anoint their guests with expensive oils and fragrances and it would then give them an overflowing cup of choice wine and the fragrant oil showed the host's love and respect and the cup of choice wine implied an abundance of all that the guest needed while under the host's roof. roof. Friends, if that's how a host treats their guest, how much better does God treat a son or daughter? He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Well, so far we saw God as a personal and providing shepherd, a purifying and pruning shepherd, and the ever-present and protecting shepherd. And as the psalm comes to a close, there are two other aspects of God's shepherding we're told about. In verse 6, we see here that God is the pursuing shepherd. And note that David wants us to see that God is a shepherd who isn't pursuing us for harm or with anger, but he pursues us with goodness and love. Surely goodness and love or goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now I don't know about you, but this is something I need reminded of 
time and time and time again as a Christian. Wonder, do you ever go through times as a Christian when you get it wrong and you blow it and you, you let God down? Do you ever think that God is finished with you? Or he's maybe going to set up some trap to teach you a horrible lesson? Christians think that. I think that. And I've been a minister for the last three years. Maybe you're not supposed to admit that as a minister. You're meant to stand and tell everybody that the boxes are all ticked and I've reached some kind of plateau or plane that I'm untouchable. Well, I'm not at that place. When I let God down, which is on a daily basis, I think, what does God think about me? Is he going to try and teach me some lesson? Because I need to take the taught lessons. Well, David tells us here that God is out to get us. But it's not with badness. It's with goodness and love. There's almost this determination that God has got as he pursues his people with goodness and love, goodness and mercy. And notice there in verse 6, it's no ifs, buts or maybes about this. Surely goodness and love will follow and pursue us all the days of our life. That word surely is to be emphasised. And David ends Psalm 23 with this definite word from the promising shepherd. Not only will God's sheep be blessed, but all his sheep will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian brothers and sisters, let me finish with a word of encouragement. God's promise to you is that no matter what you're going through tonight, no matter where you are spiritually, you might be up tonight as a Christian or you might be down there. You might be walking well. You might not feel as if you're walking at all just now. But if you're a Christian, God's promise to you is this. Your destination is 100% secure. You will dwell in God's house. And you won't just dwell there for a couple of years. You will dwell there forever. And the good shepherd himself promises this in John chapter 10. Listen to these words of Jesus. And with this I'll close. Jesus says this. I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. See all this stuff you can lose your salvation? Nonsense. It's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done. And he didn't make mistakes. Whoever enters through me, if you are in Christ tonight, will be saved. I give them eternal life, Jesus said. Eternal life. You can't lose eternal life. If you can, it's not eternal. They shall never perish. What was the word before perish? Never. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Not even themselves. And in John chapter 14, Jesus promises to go to his father's house, the house of the Lord, to prepare a place for those who belong to him. Psalm 23 is good, isn't it? It's a great psalm. Keep turning back to it. It reminds us that we are a valuable flock. And it reminds us in a sense that we are a vindicated flock. We are a privileged people. But friends, we don't keep it in this building. We don't keep it in this building. We go out there and we tell other people who are lost sheep to come into the fold. Let me just pray.
Father, we thank you for this psalm that David penned all these years ago and he would never have imagined in a million years that a bunch of rascals in Coke Bridge would be encouraged with these words. Lord, we thank you for shepherding us. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we are 100% secure regardless of how we feel. Thank you that you have promised that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's struggling tonight that this has been a word in season. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know the Good Shepherd. Lord, that you would speak to them tonight and that they would leave here as one of your sheep. And I ask this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Gary for bringing God's word to us so powerfully tonight and we look forward to hearing from him again at the fellowship uh, meeting afterwards. Uh, if you can't wait for that, if you have to dash off, uh, Gary will be at the door to shake hands. I hope he won't have to shake hands with anybody that you all manage to stay. Uh, there will be tea, coffee and so on uh, served with eats and uh, a time of fellowship uh, after the benediction has been pronounced. We're going to pick up the the theme of the end of Psalm 23 is we sing the closing hymn, uh, All My Days, I will sing this song of gladness. <coughs> All my days I will sing this song of gladness, give my praise to the fountain of delights, for in my helplessness you heard my cry, and waves of mercy poured down in my life. I will trust in the cross of my feet.
Now may grace, mercy and peace from Father, Son and Holy Spirit rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen.
black guy doing a focus trip. He's been a few times, uh, just about twice, he's had only a third time here. And he must be seeking the Lord. Something has brought her to church anyway. I saw you. I saw you in the doctors. We were following you. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, folks, we're going to say grace now, and then after the grace, uh, start over here, and you take a plate and you grab some edibles, and then you come and get your beer, your coffee on this side, and then go back to you. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you that you feed us spiritually, and we have been fed. And we thank you that you uh, feed our bodies. And we thank you for uh, not only sustaining us, but providing us with food that delights us. And we thank you for what is spread before us. And we pray that you would bless it to us and bless our fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You help yourselves.
minister is like
I'll come to you hand, maybe you can return to your seat with your bun or whatever you have. And we're going to we're going to sing first of all the Psalm 23 version that we have in the same psalm. Uh, which goes to a rather nice tune, Taiwathi, uh, I think it's called. Taiwathi. The Lord is my shepherd, no what shall I know? He makes me lie down for the good after the world. He leads me to rest. Thank you. 